take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Colossians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Hear now the word, the living Christ. Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated and let's pray together. Now, O Lord, we pray that in the preaching of your word, the people of Christ would hear the voice of their shepherd. We pray now that you would comfort us, convict us, guide us, exhort us by your spirit. Regenerate those in this place who know not the Christ. Help us, O Lord, we ask in Jesus name. Amen. What might the final words be that you would write to a church which you might not ever write to again? What would you leave them with? What what kind of status quo would you lay off with? What might you say that should you never speak to them again would be the implication of how they were to conduct themselves long after you were gone? Paul writes four chapters to the church at Colossae. Colossae was one of at least three cities where there were gospel works in a particular part of a region, the Middle East. And Paul has given quite a few words of encouragement and instruction. And today, as we close this letter, we read the last three verses of Paul's finishing words to the church at Colossae, to the Colossians. What might these words teach us about what he assumes, what he expects? And of course, when we say Paul, we're ultimately pointing to what the Holy Spirit has for the church at Colossae and for churches down through the ages I would submit to you as we read these closing words, there are perhaps at least four simple things that we can glean from them this Lord's Day. Four simple truths for readers of God's word, for believers mining this letter for the truths that the Lord has for us. Just like the last two weeks, perhaps these are words that you quickly read over in your yearly Bible reading plan. Maybe you've picked up a copy of God's Word and you're reading through a book like Colossians and you get to those last few verses and there are names and we don't often know a lot about the names and then there are is closing kind of verbiage and you know we're used to signing our letters love comma respectfully submitted comma sincerely comma and so we kind of quickly gloss over these kinds of final words But writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these three verses are rich with instruction, not only for the Colossians, but for Grace Baptist Chapel in 2022. 
So let's see these four simple truths that we can glean. And I present them to you this morning in this way. What is it that we assume and can assume from Paul's last few sentences is the regular, the ordinary, the expected status quo of the church down through the years? What is it in these last three verses that help us to understand what should be the ordinary week in, week out kind of approach long after the apostles letter has been read? Well, the first thing that I think that we see is, firstly, we are to be assembling in the word, assembling in the word. Look what Paul says in verse 16. Now, when this epistle, boys and girls, that's. Another name for a letter. When this letter is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle, the letter from Laodicea. Paul's expectation is that this letter would be read to the entire church body. The phrase here almost acts like a command to have it read. It would probably not be stretching it. To read in this, not only now when this letter is read among you, but have this letter read among you. Matthew Poole, writing in the 1600s, one of the great Puritans, commentating on this text, says this, quote, The apostle takes it for granted that when this epistle came to their hands, it would be publicly read in a solemn assembly of the church or brethren, convened to that purpose as elsewhere usual. It being an indispensable duty of Christ's disciples to search the scriptures and there solemnly to read them in the assembly for the edification of all ministers and people, old and young, end quote. You see, what Paul is after is that we read that there is a specific instruction for the Colossians. When this letter is read among you, see to it that you read this other letter to the church at Laodicea. But Poole is right, I think. We are right, I think, to press in and say this is a pattern for God's church. That the word, the spirit inspired word of scripture be read regularly among his people and that that be ultimately the cause for the assembling of Christ's people. The word sung, the word read, the word confessed, the word proclaimed and the word seen and visible signs that Christ has ordained. We are to be a people who are assembling in the word. If this was the final word that Paul would ever write to the church at Colossae, part of what he would have in mind is that they would be assembling in the word. Now, in the immediate context, there seemed to be a trading of letters. This points to the reality that the spirit-inspired word of Paul had value beyond its immediate recipients. Now think about that. We might read this and we might say, well, preacher, you're pressing that a little bit. I mean, all Paul said was, hey, read this letter. How do we get from that that there's the assumption that there's going to be the regular use in various churches of the reading of the word? But this letter to the Colossians was then to be shared with at least another church for their edification, for their building up in the faith. Specifically, it is the letter or the epistle from Laodicea. 
If you read the commentators on this, the scholars, there are quite a few interesting guesses as to what that letter might be. The top three are these. We simply do not know, nor can we prove from the text of Scripture alone what it might be. Some scholars say that this is the letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians, as we call it, because Paul is writing those letters. There are the same individuals carrying those letters at about the same time. And they're very similar letters, Colossians and Ephesians. Others say it must be the letter to Philemon that we call Philemon, right? Because that was also a letter that was sent to this very region. Some of the same names are listed. Others would say it's an unknown letter that we do not have. We simply do not know. But the point is, Paul writing spirit inspired words in this letter and perhaps spirit inspired words in the letter to the Ephesians or Philemon. Is commanding, assuming that people will be reading these letters, benefiting from them, assembling in them. Let's just Tiptoe through a few other passages to see this expectation. First Thessalonians five, verse twenty seven. Paul writes to Thessalonica. What does he say? I charge you by the Lord that this epistle, this letter be read to all the holy brethren. Or how about first Timothy chapter four and verse thirteen? First Timothy chapter four, verse thirteen. Paul writing to his protege in the ministry. Till I come, Timothy, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Paul, of all the things he could tell Timothy in Timothy's training to plant churches, to lead churches as a preacher and minister of the gospel, what is one of the areas that he says is essential? The reading of Scripture. The reading of of Scripture. Paul's assumption was that the Word of God would be read, it would be taught, and that people would assemble in the Word. When this epistle is read among you, see to it that you spread. Spread it to the church of the Laodiceans. Now, we don't have the benefit of literally tracing how it is that from Colossae and Laodicea, This letter made its way all the way, humanly speaking, to Hampton, Virginia in 2022. But we do know that by God's gracious perseverance and spreading and preserving of his word, we have it. And it's for our edification. God's people are to assemble in the word. Now, what was this word? We've just spent months walking through it. What was this word? Just to refresh your memory, turn to chapter 1. We'll go very quickly here. Paul opens with his usual discussion. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Timothy, our brother, to the saints, faithful brethren in in Christ who are in Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he begins to discuss how he's giving thanks to God for them because he's heard of their faith. He hasn't met them face to face, but he's heard of their faith. In chapter one, verses nine through 14, we read the content of Paul's prayer for them, for their faith. It's a wonderful prayer to pray for brothers and sisters, for children. 
praying that they might be filled with wisdom and spiritual understanding, that they may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. Verses 15 through 20, we have that perhaps earliest of church hymns that speak to who Christ is. Just listen to the first few words. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Remember, several verses later, he's not just the firstborn over all creation, meaning the preeminent one, the one who reigns over it, but he's the firstborn from the dead. Dealing with who Jesus is. Because in verses 21 through 23, Paul would then be at pains to say that he became a minister of of the gospel so that he could preach to the world what? The fact that in Christ, Jesus is reconciling all things unto the triune God. So in the latter part of chapter 1, in verses 24 to 29, Paul says, it's for these reasons that I'm suffering. In fact, I'm filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. My service is what? That the Gentiles would hear of the gospel. That the Gentiles would come to understand that the plan of all times has been that Gentiles as well as Jews would be united to Christ by faith. But then he has to deal in chapter 2, doesn't he, with error. Error that's crept into the church at Colossae. What was that error? Well, we sought to identify it perhaps as best as we could from chapter 2, but there seemed to be false teachers who were influenced with a kind of Gnostic philosophy mixed with some Judaistic kinds of practices, adding Christ to the mix. Paul has to deal with the fact that it is not legalism. It is not staying away from outward things that saves. It's not outward philosophy and the traditions of men, is it? But it's Christ. It's Christ. Verse 20 of chapter 2. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of this world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? Very different context, but a similar theme to the book of Galatians. Christ and Christ alone saves from sin. And the Christian life is living in union with Christ, led by His Spirit through His Word, day in and day out, seeking to keep His law for His glory, constantly looking to the hope that we have in the heavens where Christ is seated. And not all of the traditions of men that we can add to try to produce our own holiness on the outside. Chapter 3, Paul then dives in, doesn't he, to this discussion of union with Christ. Teenagers, just this past week... We were talking about union with Christ with Mr. Lunsford, weren't we? If then you were raised with Christ, could be translated since you were raised with Christ. Seek those things that are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This glorious theological truth of union with Christ then works its way out at the rest of chapter 3 and the first part of chapter 4 and how we are to live. We're united with Christ, therefore we put off sin. It's not putting off sin gets you to be united with Christ. It's we're united to Christ by his death 
The Spirit unites us to Him by faith. And we are seen as clothed in His death and His resurrection and all of His righteousness. This becomes the foundation in verse 5, in verse 8, in verse 12, in verse 18, behind what we do. Teenagers, children, let me help you understand something. Let me try to be crystal clear. The Christian life is not mainly trying to do good things. The Christian life is not primarily about going to church, about having something wonderful to say in family worship. The Christian life is seeing, firstly, chiefly, primarily, that you are a sinner. That every one of us, including your mom and dad, is a sinner. They've broken God's law. But God in His love, love that we can't even begin to fully understand, sent His Son to live a perfect life in our place. And to die a death, a physical death, yes, But as he died, God credited him with the sins of all the people who would ever trust in him. And Jesus dealt with that sin. He took it to the grave and on the third day he was raised. And the gospel is what Jesus has done. Do you have faith in Jesus? Are you trusting him to be the one to take away your sins? Are you trusting him to be the one to keep God's perfect law for you in your place? Are you trusting him to take away the curse that the garden says is ours, death, and to bring about a glorious gift that the scriptures speak of, life forever? Are you trusting Christ? That is the chief primary basis of Christianity. All of the other things that we're called to do are because Jesus has done this for us. We seek to put off sin as Christians. We seek to live in new ways. Paul gives a list here, not in anger or wrath or bad language, not lying to one another, not living in evil desires. We seek to do these things because our hearts have been changed by the Spirit, resting on Christ alone. And Paul says, this message is what I want the world to hear. So he talks about what that looks like in the home. And then he talks about how we're to live, constantly continuing in prayer. Why wouldn't we want to constantly be going to God, the one who sent his son to save us? So these are the four chapters. And Paul says, see to it that this letter is read among you. And it would be of benefit to the Laodiceans. Pass it on to them. What's the first thing that we can glean from a closing like this? The assumption of Paul is that the church is assembling in the scriptures. But the second thing is, Paul wants the church at Colossae to encourage the ministry. Encourage the ministry. Look at verse 17. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. In addition to the church, the status quo, the life rhythm of the church being assembling in the word, being benefited from the word. There is the call for Paul that the church encourage, support and even exhort the propagation of the ministry. 
We need another name, don't we? Archippus. Colossians 4, verse 17. We also read of him in Philemon, verse 2, where Paul calls him a fellow soldier and highlights him specifically in that letter as well. This very likely indicates that Archippus was in some kind of pastoral work. Now, there are scholars who argue that, well, maybe he was doing deaconing kind of work. Maybe he was given a specific task related to spreading letters or passing along messages. But given the way that Paul calls him a fellow soldier and speaks to the ministry that he's received from the Lord, being very common in multiple places regarding even Paul's discussion of himself. I've received a ministry from the Lord. It's very likely that Archippus was one of the pastors or elders of the church there. This would be the interpretation of the Puritans, Matthew Henry and Matthew Poole. And the 1700s particular Baptist John Gill and their commentaries, they all take the view that Archippus in some way, somehow had a ministry of gospel proclamation. And notice then what the ministry is described as. It's a ministry that is received. He didn't take it. It was received. It was given to him. And it was a ministry. And this is very sobering. A ministry that had the name of Christ attached to it. You see that? Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord. In the Lord. What what application might we glean from this? Okay, Paul wants them to kind of encourage their preacher. It's, It's much beyond that, brothers and sisters. Paul is essentially saying, we don't have all of the background and we don't need all of the background. Assemble in the word and say to one of the fellow soldiers, particularly as turn over to chapter one, particularly as we read in verse seven, that Epaphras is away from them. Say to Archippus. Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord. We should want our ministers to thrive and should work to that end, remembering that Christ's name is attached to it. And when I say to thrive, yes, I do think it's important for us to make sure that our elders have what they need. Yes, I think it's important for churches to make sure that pastors are uh, taken care of. But here the context is. It's almost as if the congregation is to say to Archippus, brother, we need the word of Christ preached to us. We need you to be bold in the word, brother. We give you permission as if you need it. We give you permission to be bold with us in the word. This is the ministry that you have received from God and has Jesus's name attached to it. So please don't hold back, brother. We exhort you. You have to lead us in the word. How do they do that? How do they do that? Well, of course, yes, they offer encouragement. Emails and texts were a foreign thing back then. Yes, they offer encouragement. But beyond that, they give him license to rebuke the saints. They pray for him and they beg him to 
constantly be engaged in the ministry of the Word. The Word preached. Their expectations of Him are that He will take hold of the ministry of the Word of Christ and that He will exercise it in their midst. Paul speaks to his own preaching in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. He says this, Him we preach, that is Christ, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. You think about this, brothers and sisters, the preaching of the word, the word that we assemble in and the word that we want our elders to take heed of as they minister. That word is ultimately the goal of that. The goal of preaching that word is that every single person who hears it may be presented perfect in Christ Jesus. How many churches today have this view of preaching? We want the ministry of the word in our church so that all of us can grow in perfection. Sanctification. Maturity of faith. Paul may never have contact with this church again. And what does he say? Should be a regular rhythm that you're assembling in the word. In fact, share this word with the Laodiceans. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received from the Lord, that you may fulfill it. It is indeed a blessing to pastor this particular church, brothers and sisters. Because in many ways, over these last 14 years, time in and time again, in words, yes, in texts, in emails, cards, You have looked at me. You have looked at the elders and you have said, we need the word. Keep going. Press in. We need it. And what a weight is there here, particularly, and I think it's the right view, particularly as we look at verse 17 and Archippus is seen as a a minister. Particularly when we think that it has been given to him through the church, of course, but from Christ, with Christ's very name attached to it. Very few things in the scripture come with the name of Jesus stamped on it. So Archippus, take heed. Take heed. But thirdly, Paul then says this. Isn't this interesting, boys and girls? He says, this salutation by my own hand, dash Paul. Now, if we had one of the old manuscripts that were handwritten, what this more than likely means is that Paul, as the Holy Spirit was inspiring him to send this letter, Paul, like many other letter writers in that day, would have a secretary, a scribe writing for him. Paul might be standing there. He might be praying as he's speaking. And someone is writing it down. It's it's Paul's letter. But someone is literally dictating what Paul says. But at the very last, Paul actually takes up the pen the quill, and he signs his own name. This salutation, this greeting by my own hand, Paul. And then there are two final phrases. And these phrases actually appear in multiple places in the letter as themes. The first one is this phrase, remember my chains. If we read these last 
few verses as Paul's expectation, his final sayings. We read that his assumption is that they're going to be assembling in the word, that they're going to encourage the ministry, that they're going to see it as valuable to the point that they tell their pastor, they tell one of their elders, take heed of the ministry which has Christ's name stamped on it. But thirdly, Paul's assumption is that they're going to be praying for the saints, and in this case for him. Remember my chains. Now in chapter 1, verses 24 to 29, Paul has mentioned the fact that he's suffering for the gospel. Remember that? I'm filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. He mentions being in chains elsewhere in the letter. He's in prison. Either a literal cell or perhaps a kind of house arrest. And he tells the church, remember my chains. Think about them, but but pray for them. Pray for my circumstances. Pray that God would use them. How often would Paul tell people about his sufferings so as to brag about what God was doing through them? Think about Philippians. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 3, says that we should remember those who are in chains. And even though jail evangelism and jail ministry is a wonderful thing, in the immediate context, the writer of Hebrews has in mind remembering saints who are in chains for the gospel. Remember those who are being persecuted. Pray for them. Think about them. There are brothers and sisters. Think about this, brethren. This very day, May 22nd, 2022, a good portion of Christ's body here on earth is in chains. Not really in the West, although perhaps some of us are wondering, where's where's all this cultural movement going to go? Will it land us in chains? Think of people that we've prayed for, even within the last week, North Koreans, people in parts of the Middle East, China, parts of Africa, parts of the world that are dominated by false religion. And the minority of Christians is such a small number and they're in chains. Paul assumes he actually commands that the church be praying for him. Well, lastly, he says this final phrase, grace be with you. Amen. If Paul says to the church at Colossae, I'm assuming, I'm asking that you assemble in the word, that you have these letters read among yourselves and the other churches in the Lycus Valley. If Paul assumes, number two, that the church should be encouraging the ministry. He asks them to do it. Take heed. Say to your elders, take heed. Paul asks for prayer for the saints who are persecuted. The final word is a very common word with Paul. And that would be the expectation that the church is abiding in benediction. Abiding in benediction. Over the last 15 years... I have grown to love the benedictions of Scripture. The reason that I say abiding in benediction is because 
Here again, I must say, this is not Paul's way of trying to close the letter. How are we going to end this thing? I mean, it's four chapters already. Let's say something nice and press send. It's not what Paul's doing. Paul includes the benediction of grace in one way or another in every one of his letters. Every one of them. And that grace is the grace of Christ. See, for instance, 1 Corinthians 16.23 or Galatians 6.18. Why is it that Paul constantly says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Here he just says, grace be with you. The assumption is that the church of Jesus Christ is going to be abiding in, growing in, and receiving the blessings of God's grace. We have benedictions here in our service every single week because it's a biblical pattern. Paul is not saying, I've got to close this letter, so let me give you some religious speak. He's doing what the Old Testament did. There's a word of God. It comes with instructions. And at the end of the assembling of God's people, there's the promise of God's grace. Paul ends his letters that way. Grace be with you all. Some of you who have just recently joined grace, you might have been thinking, particularly if you didn't necessarily come from another Reformed congregation, why is the benediction the pastor reading a scripture with his hands open and some people in the congregation actually lifting hands? I thought that was a charismatic thing. Because where I came from, the benediction was brother so-and-so saying a closing prayer. It's not a benediction. It's a closing prayer. And that's okay. A benediction is actually a pattern in Scripture. On behalf of the living God, receive His blessing. The apostles did it. Oftentimes, the priests of old would do it. The ministers in the New Testament would do it on behalf of the living God. It's not my grace to give you. It's not the Apostle Paul's grace to give you. On behalf of the living God, because of all the things in his word, particularly in this letter, his grace be with you. And the people receiving that is God's promise. Yes, we can say this is the will of God. We don't need to wonder if it's the will of God for his people to know and abide in his grace. We can receive it as fact because it comes from the living God through one of his messengers. Messengers that will die and in most cases be forgotten. God's grace be with you. And then, boys and girls, the word amen, which just simply means let it be so or it's true. Grace be with you. Imagine that Paul writing a letter to a church that he may never actually make it to see. He may never write to them again, perhaps he's thinking, humanly, that is. But the Holy Spirit uses him to write four chapters to this church, and then for that to be spread to the church at Laodicea, and then eventually the church on Todd's Lane in 2022. And he ends with what? Assemble in the Word. Take this. See to it that it's read. Here and everywhere. Say to your elder... Say to your elders, take heed of the ministry. Encourage the ministry, Colossians. The ministry of the preaching of the word, the gathering of the saints in that word. Pray for those in chains. And abide in the benediction, the good blessing 
the good promises of God's grace. Stay there. Live there. Receive them. They are fact. They are true. In the face of Jesus Christ, there's nothing but grace for you, church. Abide in his benediction. These are the closing words of Paul to the church at Colossae. Let's pray. Almighty God, help your saints. Drawing by implication from your word some 2,000 years later. Help us to abide in your word. To take up these letters. To see to it that they're read and preached and proclaimed. Help us to take heed of the ministry both as the elders but also the entire congregation. That generation after generation would have men laboring to proclaim the very word that we're to assemble in. Lord, may prayers for all saints, particularly those who are persecuted, constantly be on the lips of your church. And help us to receive your benediction, to abide in your grace because of the warrant that we have to do so in the finished work of your Son. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name.